depending on um, how you see this time and how long you've been here, this will either be the start of something uh, very new or it might be kind of a continuation of something that we began um, a while back. Actually, that's what it is. Last year in, in January, uh, we started a, a preaching series here going through the, the, the little book of First Peter. Does anyone remember that? Don't raise your hand. That's kind of embarrassing because none of you guys remember. But starting in January, we started going through First Peter as a way of talking about how is it that we are to live as Christians in the midst of a hostile society. The uh, title of the sermon series was A Christian's Guide to the Galaxy, and it's basically written by the Apostle Peter. Peter was um, one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus Christ, not only one of the 12, but for all intents and purposes, he was the leader of the band of, of brothers. He was uh, part of the three in the inner circle, but <clears throat> he was the, the most outspoken of all of them. He was the one, um, the one who walked on water, the first one to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, he's also the one who denied Jesus, but yet was later restored. And he's the one who boldly preached in front of thousands of people. Right? Soon after the resurrection, 40 days after the Pentecost, Holy Spirit came and he preached and saw revival. Thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He became the first great leader of the Christian church. This was Peter. And he's writing to a bunch of believers, people like you and me, who had put their faith in Jesus as the Savior, right? put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, as a Christ, put their faith in him, but were living in a, a culture that was hostile to the life of Christ within them. They were uh, Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, massive persecution afflicting them. They were um, uh, under the time of Nero. They were accused of doing all kinds of things, unjustly, falsely accused. And some of them were thinking, is it really worth it for us to continue living as Christians in midst of this fallen world. If anything, why don't we just kind of separate ourselves and create this little Christian ghetto, create this little Christian enclave and be, live, live amongst ourselves? Should it, is there any reason why we should even live out our faith amidst a world that is broken, that is falling, that is hurting, and that desires to hurt us also? That was a question that the people of Asia Minor were facing, and that's the question that First Peter was written to address. I don't know if you ever feel like is it, is it still worth it to continue living for Jesus in the midst of a society, in the midst of a culture that's so decaying and that is so immoral and that is so, uh, seems like it's, it's, it's kind of uh, fallen apart? Is it worth it for us to continue to live as Christians? Right? Do we need to continue to engage them? Why should we be a witness in this world when everything seems to be getting worse and worse and worse? That's kind of what Peter was writing to address as he writes to the people of Asia Minor. So I'm going to um, talk from 1 Peter chapter 2. We got through a chapter and then uh, the first, uh, first 10 verses of the second chapter. And instead of reviewing it all, I'm going to share from the next two verses, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, because I think these hit some of the major themes that we've come to up until this point in time. And over the next 10 weeks, I think we're going to get through the rest of 1 Peter. But uh, it's is huge. Every, every uh, sermon that we go through is going to give more ammunition and fuel and reason for why we ought to continue to engage in the life of Christ in the midst of a secular world. Either that or it will tell us something about ourselves that will help us and equip us and empower us so that we might be able to live faithfully and fruitfully in the midst of the world that we live in now. So 1 Peter chapter 2 just two verses here, verses 11 and 12, and then we're just going to un unpack this a little bit and see what it tells us, gives us marching orders for how we ought to live. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word. 
So there are three thoughts here that I just want to um, just want to share. The first thing is this. <clears throat> the first thing is we are soldiers and the stakes are high. Okay. Can you guys look at each other and say, hey, we are soldiers. Can you say that? Yeah, this is easier for the men to say, but it's hard, maybe harder for the sisters to say. But we are all soldiers and the stakes are high. What does that mean? Here's if you look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. He's talking about sinful desires. And when you talk about sinful desires, there's four things that readily came to mind. The people of Asia Minor were hearing. Here's the first thing. Sensuality. Okay, that's a sinful desire. The second thing is immorality. The third thing is drunkenness. And the fourth thing is idolatry. These are four sinful desires, categories of sinful desires that were afflicting the people that when Peter is writing, this is what he's talking about. It's very similar to today. Right? A culture awash with sensuality. Sensuality is basically, it is a giving in to our senses, typically referring to sexual immorality, to giving in to our sexual desires. This is lust. This is uh, premarital sex, whatever, the, uh, whatever it might be. Anything that causes us to illegitimately take the beautiful gift of sex and sexuality and then to twist that and to distort that in such a way that that becomes sinful. It's, it's when we take things like uh, what, what God has given to us, it's, it's when, we, when a look becomes a longing as we look at some other person. Right? We look at them, and then all of a sudden it becomes a longing. We begin to think about these things in our mind, these, these fantasies about what could be. Right? This is what he's talking about when he talks about to abstain from sinful desires. It's when we go against what the Word of God says. The Word of God says no wed, then no bed, right? You know, Hebrews 13 tells us that. It says no contract, no contact, right? <laughs> no ring, no thing. Right? That's a, this is what the Word of God is telling us about sexuality, about, uh, about the God-given desire, and, and it's taking it in its proper context and then elevating that as a gift that it is. But sinfully, t- sinfully taken, it's when we take sensuality and we twist it into something that God never intended it to be. Okay? So this is the first thing he's talking about. The second thing he's talking about is immorality. Immorality is basically the opposite of morality. It's when you take something that's right... And then you begin to say that's wrong. Okay, this is what the culture does. It takes what's right, honesty, integrity, holiness, purity, and it twists these things and says these things are wrong. And they make fun of us because of it. Not only that, but it's the opposite. It's taking what is wrong and saying this is right. It's about, it's about uh, glorifying sin. It's about taking the things that ought not be. Right? People uh, cheat on their exams and they make it up to the top and people applaud them and they praise them for it. And they say, you did a great job. Or they take someone who cheats on their taxes and makes a lot of money, and they say, you know what, you did whatever you could. That was great in order to make lots of money. Whatever the case might be, that's oftentimes what, that is immorality. It's when what's wrong is seen as right, and what's right is seen as wrong. Not only that, he goes, he talks about drunkenness also. Well, it's under that category of abstaining from your sinful desires. Talks about drunkenness, okay? I, we sing that song, it's like, uh, your love is sweeter than wine. I'm thinking like some of these uh, sixth graders are like, what does that even mean? <laughs> what does sweeter than wine mean? Sweeter than grape juice maybe, or, or I don't know. But um, <laughs> wine in its context, especially in the, in the Bible, wine was, um, it was a good thing. There was a little bit of alcohol in it. Jesus turned water into wine because wine was good. It symbolized joy. But when we take that to an extreme and we get drunk on it, Okay, this is drunkenness. It is an excess. And this is what sin is. It's an excess of anything that's good, isn't it? It's not, again, it's not the things we want, but it's wanting them too much. And that's what drunkenness is. It's when we take alcohol, 
which again, you have to be of, of age and the, according to the laws of the land, first of all. But second of all, when you get drunk on something, it's like in, in contrast, Ephesians 6 tells us the one thing that ought to control us as the people of God is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God controls us, and he sets that up in contrast with drunkenness, with wine, when he says when we get drunk on wine, basically what's happening is we are no longer under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We're no longer ourselves. It's kind of like when you don't have a snicker bar. But you're no longer yourself, but you're under the influence of alcohol. Saying This is what drunkenness is. It's when people say, well, there's something different about you, and you're like, well, it's because I've had alcohol. This is drunkenness. And then as, of, as if that was not enough to capture all that we have, idolatry is just this catchphrase that gets everything else, anything that we put before God is idolatry. He's saying abstain from sinful desires. Now, typically when we think of sinful desires, our hearts will initially do one of two things. One, here's what, here's what the world does. It says glorify, gratify these sinful desires. You look at the advertising of today, you know what a culture values when you look at the advertisements and the commercials that they put out and what they use to sell. Because what sells is usually what's on the heartbeat of man and woman, right? So you look at, you watch a football game, you watch a basketball game, and you cannot watch a game without seeing a beer commercial. Okay, here's drunkenness, right? One of the four sinful desires he's talking about. But not only is it drunkenness, but it's always coupled with super good-looking men and women. As if to say, you know what, if you, get, if, you, if you drink our beer, then you, get, you can have a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife that looks like this. It's combining all these things together, and it never, it never paints it in a bad way. You never show them getting drunk or throwing up in these beer commercials. They're always having a great old time, high-fiving each other. Ah, oh, you know what, this is great. They've got, like, they're, they're super happy, and everyone is, is, because that's what our culture is saying. This is what happens when you give in to drunkenness, sexuality, immorality, all these things. This is what happens. So in one sense, there's a desire to gratify the sinful nature, is what Ephesians says gratifying the sinful nature and then there's a spirit side of us that says abstain from these things so you've got within within every follower of jesus christ you've got these dueling desires kind of like island's adventure living within our own heart but it's not that fun because the stakes are high remember you've got these dueling desires within us to abstain from the sinful desires or to give in to our sinful desires and these are combating with each other they're fighting against each other and what peter is saying is we are soldiers and the stakes are incredibly high they're incredibly high. Why? Because these things are warring against your soul, warring for your soul. So he says, abstain from sinful desires. Give it the Heisman. Keep it away from you. Just say no to these sinful desires. That's what he's saying. And that's what Peter is telling us we need to do. Right? Why? When he, saw, when he talks about this idea of which war against your soul at the end of verse 11, the picture that he's giving here is not just a little battle here. It is a military campaign where it's constantly waging war after war after war, battle after battle after battle. We need to constantly be on guard against the sinful desires of our flesh. It's not just like one time I overcame it and that's cool, I can let my guard down. He's saying they're warring against your soul. So as a soldier... I mean, this is pretty simple. If, as a soldier, no one, no one as a soldier enlists in the army and says, oh my gosh, what the heck, a war broke out and I'm in it. What the heck? That's not what I signed up for. As a soldier, you know that you're there because there's a war going on. And Peter's saying one of our identities here is as a soldier, we've got to fight. Why? Because these things are fighting against our soul. Sinful things, he's saying, are not just neutral. They're not like, oh, you know, I can, I can deal with it. I can just kind of put it aside. I can keep it at arm's length. He's saying, no, these things are fighting against your soul. They're warring against your soul. It desires to destroy you. It desires to kill you. That's what he's saying. The stakes are incredibly high. But it's interesting because he doesn't just say abstain from sinful behavior. He says abstain from sinful desires. Why? 
Because it's easy for us to abstain from sinful behavior while our desires are still sinful. And then what ends up happening? We become what Jesus calls hypocrites. People who do the right thing on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts are not right. right? They're still sinful. So here's what happens. We do the right thing on the outside, but our hearts haven't changed. Then people who don't do what we do are going to become the object of ridicule and scorn And we'll look down on people like that. Why? Because we're doing it right, but our hearts have not changed. And so we look at people who aren't doing it right, and we begin to look down on them. You know, if it was just about sinful behavior, you know what the most holy person in the world would be? Well, it's not really a person, but a mannequin. They don't do anything sinful. They don't do anything bad. They don't smoke or drink or all these They don't do any of that stuff. Their external behavior is, is impeccable. It's spotless. But Jesus never called us to be mannequins. And Peter doesn't say change your external behavior. He says your desires. Why? Because as our desires go, so too will our behavior. It's simple because the desires, it's the, it's the operating system of a human being. You go to a restaurant and you've got a bunch of options on your menu. What are you going to choose? You're going to choose what you desire, right? If you go to, let's go to, um, I don't know, what's a good restaurant? Justin, what's your favorite restaurant? McDonald's, okay, so we go to McDonald's, and you got a choice. Am I going to get a chicken McNugget Happy Meal, or am I going to get a salad? And in that moment, what you desire most, okay, I know you guys are thinking, well, that's, that's stupid because I don't really believe this to be true. What you desire most is probably you desire that Happy Meal, right? You desire a Happy Meal. But in that moment, you will choose what you desire. Hey, but what about the times when I, I, I willingly give up my desire for a Happy Meal and I get a salad? In that moment, there's something that you desire more than the pleasure of a Happy Meal. That's basically because at the deepest core, you desire, maybe you desire a better figure. I don't know, Justin, what you desire, but you desire something. You desire health. You desire to show up to your mom. I ate my vegetables today. But something in us is driving us. We desire that more than we desire the fake chicken McNuggets that McDonald's gives us. Because we always act out of our deepest desire, contrary to what we may say. Here's what, let me break it down a little bit. So here you come to church Sunday morning. You didn't want to come here. But for some reason, you're here because your greatest desire, we operate out of our greatest desire. So something about you, even though you didn't want to come to worship, you didn't want any of this stuff, you came here today and you're here because there was a greater desire in your heart. Maybe it was a desire not to get spanked by your parents. And your parents said, boy, get in the car. We're going to spank you. And you got in the car because your desire to not be spanked was bigger than your desire to be spanked. Maybe you desired to see somebody here. And even though I don't want to worship God, your desire to see somebody here was greater than your desire to worship God. But you came. Maybe your desire was, you know what? I, I, oh my gosh, I've been to church for 87 weeks in a row, and I, can't, I, I don't want to break the streak at 88. Even though you didn't want to be here, your desire was to preserve your streak, and so you're here. Okay, so let's break it down a little bit. Let's make it more practical. We come here and we sing that my deepest desire, all that I desire, all that I adore is in you, Jesus. That's what we want. And that, that it legitimately may be our desire in that moment we're singing. But here's where, here's where uh, push comes to shove. We come, we get convicted, we get challenged. We say, you know what? I'm going to make a new desire during prayer time after a sermon. I'm going to come to prayer meeting this week. So you come to prayer meeting, you get really fired up. You're like tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up early and I'm going to spend time with Jesus because that's what my heart longs for. Here comes Thursday morning. The alarm clock goes off at some ridiculous hour, whatever it might be, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 6 o'clock, whatever it is for you. Alarm clock goes off, and you're like, man, I, I want to be with Jesus. Ah, but I, my bed feels so good right now. And so in that moment, you've got a choice, right? You've got a choice between these dueling desires in you. What, which desire is going to win out? 
Is it the desire for comfort or desire for Jesus? Which one is going to win out? Which do you love more? Which do you desire more? I tell you that the answer is not dictated by what you say, but it's dictated by what you do. And so we say, you know what? Ah, in that moment, okay, you may say, I will, I will do my, I'll spend time with Jesus later after I come back from school, after I come back from work. And that's fine. That's good. That, that's totally fine. But in that moment, what's happening is, again, in that moment, your desire for sleep is greater than your desire for Jesus. Which, again, is not a bad thing because if you, if you say you're going to do it later. I'm just saying I'm not talking about that, that sleep is sinful and that Jesus is, is not. Um, right now, what, basically, the, the point I'm making is that we, we always act out of our desire. That's what, that's what I'm trying to say. But in that moment when sleep overcomes desire for Jesus, here's what we cannot say. You know what? My issue is not desire because I desire Jesus. My issue is discipline. Let me rewind that phrase and say, is that, is that really the case? Is it really an issue of discipline or is it really an issue of desire? Because I would venture to say that if the alarm clock went off at 6 o'clock for you to go on that hot date, you would wake up and go. I'd venture to say if your alarm clock went off at 6 o'clock and you wanted to watch the World Cup in a foreign country and that was the only time your favorite country was playing, you'd wake up. You'd watch a movie at that hour. You'd do, whatever, you'd do other things for it. You'd go to um, Island Venture. You'd go to uh, Bush Gardens at 6 o'clock. It's not an issue of discipline. If you really desire it, then you would discipline yourself to do it. Here's my point. We are always acting out of our deepest desire. That's why Peter is saying abstain from sinful desires because these things are warring against your soul. And we're always acting out of our deepest desire. And so if we feed the desire for sin, that desire is going to grow and that's going to affect our behavior. If we feed the desire for Christ, that desire is going to grow. And when push comes to shove, our deepest, greatest desire is always going to win the day. We're soldiers. The stakes are high. And this is important because of the second thing that we're going to see here. The second thing that we see here is important, that we are strangers and the natives want us to fail. Okay, what does that mean? Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. So he, said, he calls us aliens and strangers. And then this is like chapter 2, verse 11. Obviously, when Peter was writing, he didn't say chapter 1. Hey, guys, this is me, Peter, writing. Chapter 2, here's the next thing. He didn't write that. He just wrote one long letter. And then later, as in order to help us to be able to reference it and to preach on it and stuff like that, he, uh, people added in these chapter divisions. But the third time, for the third time in these short chapters, third time he calls us aliens and strangers. Why? Because that's who we are and because he doesn't want us to forget that. He says, you are aliens and you're strangers in this world. What does that mean? It means this world isn't our home. You just kind of let that sink in. This world isn't our home. And if this world is not home, then we can't make our lives at home in here. We shouldn't be comfortable here. Just like if you're, if you're hanging out at a hotel, you don't bring all of your belongings and unpack like your a picture of your family and, and, and the picture in your room and you don't set up like, you don't buy new furniture, bring it into your hotel. Why? Because that's not your home. I don't know if you guys ever sang that song when you're growing up. This world is not my home. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up way beyond the blue. Angels beckon me from heaven's open door. 
and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. This world isn't our home. That's what he's saying. We can't feel at home. We can't be too comfortable here because it's not, we're just passing through. Our treasures aren't here. Our treasures are laid up way beyond the blue. And angels wait for us. Cloud of witnesses beckon us. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Like, this isn't our home. We shouldn't feel like this is it. This isn't our best life now, contrary to what Joel Osteen says. It's not. We're just pilgrims. We're aliens and we're strangers here. That's it. We're just passing through. I, the last time I went to Korea, 1999, I was 23 years old. Um, I was really excited to go there because I've never been in a place outside of my church where I was a dominant majority. And I, I went to Korea, and I was so excited. It was just, it was just me and my brother. He's three years older, 26, and went out there to Korea and just looking to have a, a, a good time just getting in touch with our roots and seeing our, our relatives and uh, grandparents and things like that. And after a little bit, I, it was very quick for me to realize that, you know what, this place isn't my home. As much as I look like everyone else here, everything about me screams, this is not my home. Even though I look like the rest of the people on the outside, the clothes that I wore, the way that I talked, the way that I walked, the things that I, uh, uh, things that I ate, people could look at me and they say, you know what, he's from America or he's not from here. I remember trying so hard. I thought my Korean was, was decent. And then when I got to Korea, where people actually speak all, like everyone speaks Korean, people at the restaurant, people trying to help me find a bathroom when I had to go to the bathroom, people at the stores, people on the street, taxi drivers, subway drivers, people at, hey, how do I get to Mia Samgori? I don't know where I'm going. How do I get to this place? I thought my Korean was decent until I, I started talking. And then they're like, what are you saying? What are you saying? And I like forget it, and I just like walk away. And after about a week there, I was like, I'm not, ta- not going to talk anymore, because I felt like I felt so small. I felt so degraded. I felt like you know what? Hey, I'm smart in America when I when I speak in English to people who are younger than me. But when I come to Korea, it's like fifth graders, five year old people. They're like, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, young or what are you talking about? Older brother? What are you talking about? Uncle? We don't understand what you're saying. And I felt so belittled in the presence of these little children that I said, I'm just going to button my lips and not talk. After about a week, I was like, I want to go back. I want to go back to my real home. I remember walking through and um, not only not being able to talk, but the, the place, if I was in America, I'd try and find, find solace was on basketball courts. So I couldn't find a basketball court anywhere. I had this little cousin. His name is John. He was probably like six at the time. And um, I said, John, there's got to be a place around here where you can play basketball. I'm saying this in Korean. And he could understand me because he was like smarter than all the other people in Korea. <laughs> I said, there's got to be a place that we can play basketball. And he's like, oh, yeah, we can walk to my school. I said, how far is your school? He's like, oh, it's right around the corner. I turned about the corner. It was like two miles long. So we're walking around and finally get to this place. There's a huge playground opens up. I was like, all right, this is great. And he, I was like, where's the basketball court? And he's like, oh, it's around the, the back. And so we got to the place. There was a basketball court. There was a pole. There was a backboard. But there was no hoop there. So I was like looking around. I was like, uh, is this where we're going to play? He's like, yeah. And he's like, give me the ball. And I'm like, well, how are we going to play here? I was like, where's the hoop? He's like, he calls it a ring. He said, uh, you don't need a ring here. I said, what do you mean you don't need a ring here? He's like, no, you don't need that. All you need is the, 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 the square on the backboard. He's like, you just take the ball, throw it. If it gets in the square, you get two points. If I get it, you get two points. I was like, what the heck, man? This is terrible. I would just, let's just go home. I want to go home. I, I realized that this place isn't home anymore. And I just wanted to get back to where home was. And Peter's saying, look, this world that you live in is not your home. 
things in this world, it should be foreign to you. The values of this world should be different. The way people talk, the way people think, the things of this world. And we have to understand that as strangers in this world, there's a lot that's in this world that is going to be up against and opposed to the life of Jesus Christ within us. Here's, let, me, let me break it down a little bit. You cannot assume that what you're learning in school is the same thing as what the Bible is teaching you. This is what it means to be a stranger in this world. That's the sad reality. When they talk about sexuality, when they talk about homosexuality just being an alternative lifestyle, that's not what the Bible teaches. It is not. And, and I, don't, I don't say that because I know that I know people, I know many people who struggle with, the, with these desires, and I know it's a very real struggle. And there's no condemnation in, in, in saying that, but that's what the Word of God says. And, and our schools are going to teach us, and they're going to say it's just another way to live. It's, it's fine to have uh, two fathers and, 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 and have a child. It's okay to have two mothers and have a child, but that's not what the Bible says. Like I, I, hate to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news to, to some who've been, been thinking that this is true, but it's not. I can't, I can't stand for something that the Bible doesn't stand for because this is ultimately, this is what we, we place our stand on. And this is what we put our hope in because it's the word of God that tells us we're citizens of, of another kingdom and this is the handbook for life. And it means that the things that you listen to on your iPod, a lot of these things are not going to be teaching values that the word of God teaches you. The movies that you, that you watch are not teaching things that are biblical. Just because someone is famous doesn't make them a role model because the clothes that they wear, the things that they say, the things that they talk about, the things that they do in their spare time, the things that they do that, that TMZ catches, these things are not, these are not in line with the values of, of, of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Right? This is what it means when, when Peter says we are aliens and strangers in this world, that there's a lot in this world that comes up against the life of Christ within us. And we cannot blindly accept what, what media says, what advertisers say, what TV says. We can't just take that and say, okay, this is, this is what you do. This is what you do. Because of what the world says is not what Jesus says. And it's not. They're different a lot of times. Uh, Olive and I were watching this, this movie last week called Argo. And I'm not going to go much into it, but it's basically about Iran and, and, and U.S. relations and Canada, uh, Canadian relations. But one of the things that the, the reason why Iran and, and America are odds with each other is because um, the Americans were, were kind of protecting and, and um, kind of supporting one of their leaders of Iran who had, who had brought Western values into the world, into, into Iran. And so the people of Iran were, they were just in outrage because they were living a certain way. And when Western culture, Western values begin uh, infiltrating into the culture, they're saying this is going to change the way that we live. And so they wanted to do everything that they could to stomp out the life of the Western values in their country. And here's what Peter is saying is in this world that we live in, there's a certain set of values and the Christian values come in that are contrary to that. And everything in the world is trying to stamp that out because if they can stamp it out, then they don't have to change the way that they live because the ways of Christ run counter to the ways of this world. And when Peter says, look, you are aliens and strangers in this world, live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong. In this life and in this world, because our values are different from the values of the world, there will be times when we are accused falsely for doing what we, for standing for truth. And people will make fun of us, they'll ridicule us in other places throughout the world. Our, our brothers and sisters of faith are being persecuted heavily, heavily, they're being jailed, they're being hurt, they're being tortured. 
Some of them are being killed because the values that they embrace run counter to the values of the dominant culture of this world that Ephesians says is, is ruled by the enemy, is ruled by the devil, the prince of the power of the air. And so when Peter writes, hey, hey, you know what? The world is going to oppose you. They knew readily what this meant because they were persecuted for their faith. It was Christians under the rule of Nero. Women and children uh, were dressed as, as, as goats and they're put in the Colosseum so that lions could devour them. It was Christians who were uh, set on, uh, they were covered in tar and they were set on fire so that the emperors who were anti-Christian could line the streets with human torches during their opulent ceremonies and parties. It was Christians that were doing that because the values that they embraced were contrary to the values of the Roman Empire. They were seen as atheists because they didn't worship the emperor like the rest of the empire did. They were seen as as unjustly accused of, of committing incest with each other because they called each other brother and sister. And then they would have holy, they would exchange holy kisses upon greeting one another. And so the empire falsely accused them of having incest with one another. They said that these group of people, these Christians are weird. They're cannibals. Because during the most important meal that they celebrate, which we will celebrate next week, they eat the body and the blood of their leader. And Christians were falsely accused of being cannibals when they would gather together at the Lord's Supper. The dominant culture, the culture of our world is in opposition to the life of Jesus Christ within us. And they want us to fall and they want us to fail. Why? Because if we mess up, then we lose the right to tell them that they need to live a different, there's a better way to live. There's a different way to live. There's a morality that has been established by God and that's how he's calling us to live. And our culture wants us to fall. The world wants us to fall. Because we're aliens and we're strangers in this world. The last thing that we see though, the last thing that we see, not only are we soldiers and strangers, but here's, here's the last thing, that we are being watched And our witness can win the world for Christ. Verse 12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. When he says, so that they may see your good deeds, the picture that he's giving is not just they give a glance at you. He's saying they are looking at you, they're watching you for a long period of time. Right? This is why behavioral change isn't going to do it. Right? Our desires have to change because ultimately at the end of the day when push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road, whatever cliche you put out there, when, when it's time for you to show up, your behavior is going to be dictated by your desires. And that's why he says abstain from sinful desires, because the world is watching. It's almost like it, the idea is, like as you go to school, as you go to work, as you go to uh, the, the shopping mall, whatever place you go to, there are people all around, and it's like they're watching you, spectators, as if they're watching a movie. And our lives are on full display and full view of everybody else. And they're watching the way that we live. It's like they're sitting and they've got, it's like they've got popcorn. And they're watching the way that we live life to see if there's anything worth imitating, if there's anything worth buying into, if there's anything worth giving our lives to based on the way that these Christians live. That's what he's saying. They're watching our lives 
as a commercial for the kingdom of God, and they're wondering, do I want to buy into that or not? Is the life, is what they have any different from what I have? And as they eat their popcorn, they're watching us. They're watching the way we talk. They're watching the way we dress. They're watching the way we handle stress. They're watching the way we deal with getting laid off. They're watching the way we deal with not getting into the college of our dreams. They're watching us handle our family. They're watching us talk to our children. They're watching how we deal with the unruly behavior when someone cuts in front of us at Publix. They're watching all of these things, and they're wondering, is there something to what they have to say? My professor Steve Brown says, whenever a non-Christian dies, a Christian dies also so that the world that's watching us can see the difference in how we respond. They watch our lives. What is a story, the title of the movie of our lives? As your classmates watch you and as your coworkers watch you, what's the movie that, what's the title that they would give to your life movie? Wouldn't it be great if their movie title for you would be The Faithful One? A true and genuine believer. 24 7. No compromise. So much better to have that kind of a title than any given Sunday, but only on Sundays. The world is watching us. And Peter's saying, look, as they watch us, they may be watching us with the desire that we fail. He says, if they watch us long enough, he says, let your life be so that if they watch you long enough, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And people are watching. You might think, you know, my life is my life and nobody cares what I'm doing. Peter says that's not the case. People are always watching, always seeing our lives, always seeing where is he going when he goes off by himself? Where is he going when he just says, I'll be right back. And who's he talking to? What is he doing? Who's he texting? What, what are the things going on? Right, they're always watching. I read this blog about uh, this, this man wrote, I forget his name, but I, I linked it on my Facebook. It was really powerful. But it's a, the 1986, the, the, guy, the boy was two years old. His dad, things like an Air Force fighter, uh, flew planes, fighter jets. And... Um, when he was two years old, his father was uh, flying over the Atlantic Ocean doing a routine training practice mission and collided with another plane. And he fell into the Atlantic seaboard and searched and searched and searched. They couldn't find him. Him and his navigator, both gone. And uh, this boy was two years old, and so everything that he knew about his dad, he had to hear from his, from his mom, who was a widow. Mother's telling him stories about the kind of person that your dad was. There's one story that he's blogging about. He says, three lessons, three legacy for my dad's life. And um, one of these lessons, he said, my dad, um, during one of, these, one of these times when he was a fighter pilot, um, his squadron, they all went to this party. They said, uh, family members are not allowed to come. It was at this beach house. And so he said, my dad went. And when he got there, he knew right away why family members weren't invited, because they had, they had invited strippers there. And so this was kind of like a big party. It had to be there. It's where some of the younger pilots get their stripes and things like that. And 
And so at, at this party, this, his father was a, was a just solid believer. And as soon as these strippers came out, he's like, oh, my, what are we going to do here? So that night he went home and he told his wife what had happened. And we're at this place and, and they brought these, these scantily clad women out. He said, what did you do? He said, I went to the corner of the room and the whole time I just covered my eyes. So later on, he, you know, he, obviously he dies and, and passes away and things like that. And, and one of his squadron members, one of his fellow pilots, went to his widow. And he said, you know what? Um, just telling the story that night, um, your husband was the only one who didn't watch what was going on. And he said, here's a picture. And he gave her a picture. And picture has all these people. Just Some of them have, have beer in their hands. They're all sitting around. It doesn't show the, the women. In the corner, you see this guy. He's got his hands over his eyes. And picture's on the internet. I'm not going to show it now. But picture's on the internet. And this guy said to his wife, to, his, to the wife of the man, he said, we all saw what he did. And we all wanted to do what he did also. But we didn't have the guts to do it. And I thought to myself, wow. And the world is watching what we do. They're watching the way that we live. They're seeing it. They're taking pictures. They see everything that we do. Live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good deeds. They glorify your Father who's in heaven on the day that he visits. See, ultimately, our good deeds not so that people can look at us and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, Brian's a great guy. He's such a good guy. Hey, you know what? Alexa's a great girl. She's so good. That's excellent and everything. That's not the point. I love what Chris Tomlin, who wrote many of the songs that we sing up here, Chris Tomlin said, my aim as a, as a worship leader is to take people to see Jesus as I lead worship and then just kind of slip out the back door so people don't even, don't even remember that I was even there. Just leave them seeing Jesus. David Crowder, same thing. He says, you know, when I walked into cathedrals in Europe, just everything lifts my eyes upwards to see the greatness of who our God is. And, and Crowder says, I want to build cathedrals, not with brick and mortar and stone, but with words and notes and with actions. I want to build cathedrals that cause people to look up and to see the glory of God. Because at the end of the day, nobody needs to see you and me. No, one get, no one's life is going to be changed because they see us. That's not, what the, that's not what a dying world needs to see. Oh, uh, yeah, what a great person. Oh, yeah, he's really good. He works hard. They don't need to see us. What they need to see, they need to see the true stranger that the world wanted him to fail. They need to see the true soldier who fought with everything within him, fought so hard to the point of sweat coming down as, as blood Blood vessels just popping out because he's fighting so hard because the stakes are high. Not his soul, but our souls were at stake. They need to see the life of one whom everyone was watching him, hoping that he would fall. But when they see him on the cross, they see him dying for our sins. And they say, surely he was the son of God. And a watching world was one because of his life. That's who they need to see. They don't need to see us. They need to see Jesus. To glorify him, not to glorify us, to glorify God. 
on the day he visits us. At that, la- that last phrase, I think, is so important to how we live life. The day of visitation in the Old Testament talked about when God would come to either bless or to judge. But in this context, it's talking about judgment day. So that non-believers would glorify God on judgment day by saying, Jesus, we put our faith in you because of the witness of these people of faith. We glorified you. We put our faith in you, Jesus. He's saying, look forward to the day of judgment. Live for that day, man. When we think about, we think about our lives on judgment day, it's either going to be two things, guys. One of two things. Either we will live for reward or we will live for regret on judgment day. Every choice we make is going to be rewarded or we're going to regret it. And maybe not up there, but here, think about it in that way. How I spend my time, how I spend my money. I'm not going to regret giving my money so that people in foreign lands can come to know Jesus Christ. I'm going to regret the fact that I bought things that I didn't really need. That's what I'm going to regret. Did I really need to buy that? That's what I'm going to regret. Did I really need to buy that article of clothing when I had all these other things? That's the things that I'm going to regret. But we have a, we have a guy in here, a, a brother, who's going to be fasting for 40 days for spiritual renewal because he wants to know Jesus more. He wants to love Jesus more. That's not going to be regretted on Judgment Day. Every choice that we make is going to either lead to reward or to regret. On the day of visitation, how are we spending our lives, people of God? How are we spending our time, our money, our efforts, our talents? What are we doing? We live in such a way that when we get to the end, be able to say, I had no regrets. I did not waste the one life that you gave to me that we would live for the glory of Jesus in that way so that many watching people would also worship him without regret but with reward because they saw our lives pointing to Jesus and they too glorified him. Let's pray together. My friends, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Treasures are laid up way beyond the blue. Angels beckon us from heaven's open door and we can't feel at home in this world anymore. We're strangers and we're soldiers, but guys, get this. Our witness could win the world for Jesus Christ. Our witness, our desires, restrained, surrendered for the sake of the kingdom will lead people to glorify God. Let's pray um, as we feel so led to pray. Maybe it's a prayer of confession. I need to confess choices that I regret. God, I confess that I, I didn't do what was honoring to you. I didn't live a good life in front of, amongst the pagans. God, I didn't do it. I didn't do it the way that I, I, I need to, the way I want to, the way that you deserve. Cleanse me, wash me, so that I can take a step forward in grace today to be different for your glory. Let's confess and then let's pray, God, help me to reexamine. What does this mean? What does this mean for my life? What does this mean? Maybe for some of us it means, hey, let's start by living in our conviction. Maybe God's been convicting us about our finances to tithe to his church. Maybe he's been convicting us about our time to, uh, to, to spend concentrated, intentional time alone with Jesus. Spend less time with certain things. Maybe for some it's less time with believers and more time getting out there with unbelievers so that they might see our good deeds. But let's pray a twofold response. One, 
confession. And God, here's where I haven't done it right. And then of commitment. Say, God, help me to live in this way by grace. Let's pray for a couple moments right now. Let's pray for a couple minutes, just responding to the word of God, allowing him to purge our hearts. We might live the way that would glorify him, honor him, and lead people to see Jesus in our lives. Let's pray together for a few moments, and then I'll pray on our behalf. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us life. This is what you do. You make us come alive. Father, you want us to have good things in life. I know that you do because your word tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. It does not change. You desire for us to have good things. But Father, cleanse us for the ways in which we've made good things our security. We know in our hearts when we cross the line from the things that we need to to simply the things that we may want when other things convict us and call out to us and, and we know that we could be investing in things that are more lasting. Father, that you would have mercy on us and that you would convict us by grace. Thank you that, Jesus, you did all these things that we failed to do, but you did it for us so that we might have life, that we might have a light, that we might be your witness. Help us to take this light and shine for the whole world to see. Thank you so much. We need you. God, we need you every moment we need you. We love you because you gave everything so that we can know your love first. Thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name.